I've never um, ministered in the high need area, but I will say that one of the things that's been interesting with our work is about a third of the people that come now are impoverished, where they've probably experienced either street poverty or, or you know, um, assistance, government assistance. Probably a third of our church is working poor, and I'll explain some of the reasons that that's happened lately. Hamilton is the poorest city in Canada, um, and I'll explain some of how that's happened. And uh, um, and then a third of our group is professional, so I have some idea of how to work professional. And I, I'll tell you a bit of my story. But I grew up in the country, so I grew up in a wealthier area. We weren't wealthy. We made that, but you know, average middle class, probably even I don't know, upper middle class. So we're a very comfortable middle class family, you know. So, um, so I grew up in that kind of environment. You know, acre of land. When we were teenagers, we had four cars in the driveway, right? Because there's no bus system, so there's three kids that drive, two parents, so. Eventually, my sister and brother both bought a vehicle. I was the one that went to university, so that was where my money went. But anyway, so I get, you know, the four cars. I mean, we could probably fit our lane pretty long. My dad, we could fit way more than four cars in the driveway. So um, so that's, oh, sorry. So I tried it in case somebody else came. That was very polite of her. She didn't yell at me. Um, so anyway, I could talk a bit about that because I've, I've actually spent a fair bit of time in suburban churches talking about how do you do some of that. Not that I would say I have the greatest answers, but I have some ideas. So with that said, let me walk you through this, but let me, let me tell you a little bit about my story. So I just said, shared a few things, but I, I grew up in a good, godly Christian home with wonderful parents. I, I grew up in what would be considered a Sovereign Grace uh, Baptist church. So it was a church that was, preached very sound doctrine um, and very reformed doctrine. But in the church I grew up in, evangelism was haphazard and incidental over intentional, if that makes sense. So God saved people because he's a good God, but it just wasn't, we weren't intentionally reaching our community. We just, you know, we were just there. And occasionally someone kind of snuck in and we'd go, oh, and uh, God would save them and be like, praise the Lord. And, uh, and I'm not kidding. Like, you know, now in our teenage years, we had a church of about 120. And um, in our teenage years, uh, in my growing up years, probably for about an eight-year period, um, there was about 30 of us that were kind of, you know, between 14 and 22. And so we had a great youth group. And uh, and that was really pivotal in growing up. Just godly group. You know, I think seven or eight of us went to Bible college. Um, just a godly, great group that was a lot of fun and uh, and loved the Lord. And, and, uh, and it was good. What I would say is then I went to Tyndale, um, so I, sorry, just the country thing. So did grow up in the country, parents about an acre of land, uh, you know, play football in the backyard. I worked on two farms. My dad wasn't a farmer, he was a machinist, but, you know, um, bailed hay when I was 13 and 14, worked for the only corner store in town for a while, um, you know, and literally the only corner store, and that was awesome. Like, you know, that corner store used to do on a Saturday $10,000 worth of chips and pop and ice cream and movie business. Yeah, is that not crazy? Is that not crazy? I remember counting it the other day. Uh... Um, and they had lottery, um, but um, I was young, so it was fine. They were buying the tickets, I wasn't. Um, so that said, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm not saying that should be justifiable. I was 16. So um, I really enjoyed working there. The boss was excellent, Mr. Hong. Uh, he, was, he was great to work for. Um, he would always tell me I didn't eat enough when I was there because we could eat the food while we were there, and, and he never charged us for it. And he's like, you, you don't eat enough, he says. It's free, free for you for working. But, I just had a hard time. I felt like stealing, even though he kept telling me every day. And I worked there for like almost two years. So then uh, I worked for the only plumber that was in town for six summers, and they were great. And I'll just quickly tell the story. It's a great story. Non-believing. Um, um, she came to Christ. We, my wife and I, 
you know, so I left there, went into the ministry. We kept in contact with them. They went to the United Church, but a very liberal, you know, I talked to their minister several times, wouldn't believe in the Trinity, wouldn't believe, mm-hmm. you know, you know, everyone goes to heaven, you know, church. And so um, two weeks before he died, and he was their Sunday school superintendent, he was a pillar in our community because everyone knew him. He had the only plumbing business in town. He, he supported all kinds of endeavors. In that sense, in the world, just a good man and a good family. Like, you know, four great kids. Their, their fifth daughter um, was born with a heart condition in early 20s. She passed away. And like as non-Christians, they just journeyed through all that healthy and well, if that makes sense. And he, was, he had cancer, and two weeks before he died, I was, I was sitting with him, and I said, Elwood, are you scared and, uh, to die? And he said, I'm terrified. I said, why? And he said, I don't know if I've been good enough for God to let me in. And so we just walked through a ton of passages, and that night he gave his life to Christ. God just grabbed a hold of him. And I was there the night he died. We didn't know he was dying that day. He was still pretty healthy. It was a surprise. He'd been sick, obviously, but a surprise in the sense that, you know, some of you have journeyed with people who have died with cancer, and... and you're there in their last moments, they're not conscious, they're, they're just breathing their last breaths. Well, he was eating supper, right? Like, so not at all in that state. So I popped in for an hour, visited, I was leaving, and as I was going, he took my hand and he said, take care of your family, take care of your church, thanks for being a friend. I'm not scared anymore. I'm going to see Jesus. Yeah, so... Anyway, so kind of neat how all that things work. So I, I went to Tyndale to Toronto because, um, th- you know, that's where a bunch of my friends were going, and that's where the pastor I grew up under had gone and, uh, and um, was there for four years doing a BTH, and I really enjoyed it. Um, the city, though, I, I loved the city. I, I can't explain why. I miss the country sometimes. When I'm at my parents' house, I miss the backyards. I, well, a couple of years ago, I was in my backyard, and, and the farmer I worked for is still baling hay, and... He called me over, and all of a sudden I find myself throwing hay bales on the way again. And my son was there thinking it was the coolest thing. And I think, this is now free. Like, he's not getting free labor out of me. I should be charging him, putting a bill here. <laughs> I think it's more than four bucks an hour when I was 13. But it was fun. We had a great talk. I walked around with him for an hour and bailed hay. And my son thought it was the coolest thing in the universe. And uh, he's like, Dad, you should be a farmer. And I'm like, well, yeah. since I can't do anything mechanical, that would not work. I'd have to hire everyone to fix anything on the farm. Um, so... Um, so that said, Tyndale, being in Toronto, I enjoyed, I would go downtown, I was just drawn to downtown. We, we had a dance drama team called Steadfast, and uh, a guy named Bruxy Cavey had trained us, and he was at that time just doing da- dance and drama stuff, and he trained us in doing it. Now, I can't dance and I can't do drama. Um, <laughs> so what did I do? Well, what happened, one night I showed up, and I was just there to kind of pray for them and watch them, and they would do they would do these five or six skits and they were typically set to music. So they would take a Christian song and songs that would tell a story and they would act the story. They actually did really well with it. And one time they were done the songs, there had to be 120 people right outside the Eaton Center, downtown Young Street, standing there. And one of my buddies says, preach. And I said, what? He said, preach. We need to, you need to do something in between so we don't lose this whole crowd. Preach. We need to break preach. I said, preach what? Preach Jesus, that's all he said. And I'm like, okay. And I just stood in front of the crowd and I started to speak. And uh, I spoke for eight or 10 minutes. And, and then when I was done, we had some tracks and shows we could give people. We were young, I was 19 years old. So I had no idea how to, how to integrate people into local churches, what it meant to do kinds of follow-up. Like we're just like, we're praying with people on the side of the street and just thankful that God's at work, right? I wish I had some semblance of idea of follow-up and stuff then because we, we did that every Friday night until it was too cold to be outside. And the crowds got smaller when it got colder, right? And then in the spring, we'd start right up again and run until the last week of school. And, 
And I remember being down there late enough, many Friday nights, with conversations with people. The police never shut us down. We never had a permit. We did it for two years. Oh, man, I can't believe we never got in trouble. And because uh, we would just pull up the back one of my buddy's car was a beautiful Alpine, I don't know if Alpine makes stereos anymore, stereo system, and just have music blaring in downtown Toronto, right? And uh, every Friday. And uh, yeah. So anyway, I had a heart for the city. We started to uh, fast lunches at the school, and they would give us a bag lunch for everyone who fasted. And we would take 60 or 70 bag lunches downtown every Friday and just hand them out and create relationships with people. Again, I wish I'd understood how to better do any of that. I was 19 and 20 years old and really, yeah, you're young, but it was fun and I loved doing it. And many nights we were out late enough that I remember, this is a pain in Toronto. If you miss the one o'clock or one eleven, whatever it is, subway, you then get on the Young Street bus. Now you don't have to walk, at least the Young Street bus one's 24. We did walk one night and didn't realize that from downtown Toronto to where Tyndale is, it would take us nine hours to walk. It was fascinating. Our feet were so sore. We kept saying, should we get on the bus? No. There was like eight of us, and it was quite a journey. And uh, yeah, oh yeah, we got to school that morning. We all went to bed. We were exhausted. Because not only had you been up all night, but you just walked. We should have made it a fundraiser. <laughs> said, this is what we did. Pay us for it. But, um, but, but I loved it. And, and so... When I was done school, I, I talked to the convention and the fellowship about, because I grew up in the convention, about where I might fit and what I might look like and looked at other places. But I was young. I was 20, 21, 22 at the time and when I started those conversations, you know, graduating at 22. And everyone was kind of like, yeah, there's not really anything for you, right? I mean, I was just young. And, and, uh, and so this little church, Houston Street Baptist Church, which was downtown Hamilton, had a good pastor, um, Peter Wright, and uh, I asked him if I could volunteer with him, and he was really good about it. And what I liked about Houston Street is Houston Street um, was a place where, though Pete would take pastors and preach to them, like I remember him going to the Gospel of Luke, he would spend less time on his sermon than the pastor I grew up under. So the pastor I grew up under would study pretty much a whole book of the Bible first in Greek or Hebrew before he would preach a sermon from it. So the whole book of Timothy would be studied. Um, he may not have all the sermons prepared. Now, I just remember... I'll never forget. He used to let me preach once a month, and I'd sit with him in his office on Wednesdays, and he'd be like, so what do you think the passage says? And I'd tell him, and he'd be like, why, why would you think the passage says that? And I'm like, oh, goodness, why would I think the passage says that? And uh, we'd have this great conversation. It, that, I'll tell you, that experience is what I experienced this morning with Don Carson sitting there. And then because I'm with these guys, then having lunch, he's probably not here, having lunch with them, he was very gracious. But I'm like, oh, he's going to tell me what he really thought. Um, <laughs> You know, he was very gracious, um, or it was what he really thought. So one of the two. So, so, so that said, um, that's the kind of model I grew up under, and in a model where there was Sunday morning, Sunday school, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and he taught it all of them. Um, um, which I'm not saying is a bad model. It's just, it just, it was, it's time intensive if you're teaching four time slots a week, right? So, so you know, all that said is to say, then, then at this church, you know, small congregation, um, very little finance. Like the year I took over, so I don't know what it was the year when Pete was pastoring, but our budget was 35000 My salary was 7500 That's all they had the first year I was there. And, um, and yet we all believe that's what God, God wanted to do something neat. So I volunteering with Pete. Six months into it, Pete wrote a letter where he resigned from the church and recommended that I pastor the church. He was only in his early 40s. 
Um, our 125th anniversary is this weekend. He's actually coming back to do some speaking at it. Um, he's in Edmonton now. And uh, a number of people are coming. Michael Haken, some of you may know who he is, but he's doing one of the workshops. He's coming. We found our documents. This is a total aside. We found our documents from 1886 on every minute of every meeting. And in 1886, we hadn't started. So we have, we have a year. We have the planting minutes of our church a year before they started. And uh, so he's created a 70-page book on the history of our church and God's faithfulness because several times in its history it almost died. And, um, yeah, God's been neat. So that's a bit of the story, and God's given me a heart for the Urban Center. My wife, uh, I'm, I was ordained in 1988 uh, and married in 1988 and uh, April and May, one month after the other. And, uh, and um, I, uh, I was ordained first because we joked about that maybe now I could do my own wedding, but you can't do that, and I wouldn't want to. Um, and so we, uh, we've lived downtown uh, that whole time. I've been there 18 years. We've been married 14 years. Um, and uh, we have four kids that, that we're raising there. Our two oldest kids are 10 and 8. And uh, our twin daughters are 2 and a half. And they were our surprise uh, because uh, they're almost five years after our other daughter. We just thought God had said no more kids. And then God said no, no, a couple more. Um, they were born three months early. Um, so they were born at one pound and 13 ounces and two pounds and nine ounces. And they didn't know if they would live. And um, they were in the hospital for just over three months. Our one daughter, Ivy, shed her skin twice like a snake would. Um, McMaster had only ever seen a kid do it once, never seen it twice. Um, my wife, a few days in uh, from the ICU, contracted some type of rare rash. And so um, she was unable to go in and see our kids for 10 days. Um, and when, you know, when they're that young and the doctors don't know if they're living or not, and there's all kinds of complications, and they couldn't get IVs in their body, and then one time they got an IV into our daughter, Ivy. Um, but, but, yeah, but, but they put it in wrong because her veins are so small, and it burned her arm. She's got a permanent mark on her arm from that, and, and um, she couldn't be in there for any of that, right? And uh, then they, we found out they have CMV which is a virus most of us, I've learned so much about viruses and stuff. Most of us carry it on us, about 85% of the world's population. One in like, it's a crazy number, 300 million people have it in them, and our daughters do. And it's neurological in nature, and so by age six, um, even though they're fine now, they could be blind because it could happen developmentally, or hearing loss, or uh, diminished mental capacity. Um, they've experienced uh, some pretty severe hearing loss. Our one daughter, Ivy, just moderate, uh, mild, sorry, our daughter, Jewel, uh, uh, is severe, probably 80% deaf. Um, but God's good in the midst of that. And um, I'll just tell the story because I told the deaf thing, and then I'll get into urban stuff. Um, in March, she was on my knee at the audiologist's office for so two and a half years, and they put the first hearing aid in. And you got to wait a couple, you know, 30 seconds or whatever. And I said, Jewel? And she smiled. And she said, Daddy. Because she could say about 25 words. Hi, Daddy. And she touched her ear, and she's like, wow. And she just reached over and gave me this great big hug, and she was like, oh, wow, Daddy. She said, wow. And then they put the other hearing aid, and she's just like, wow. And uh, when we got home and we got out of the van, we live we lived close to Mac and at McMaster University, um, she looked up in the sky and saw the birds, and she's pointing at them going, oh, Daddy, and wow. And she, I think for the first time she heard birds. And uh, so our kids go, I mean, you could be homeschool, Christian school, you know, whatever school. Our kids happen to go to the public school and, and the Fraser Institute uh, a couple of years ago was ranked in the bottom 100 of the 3,000 schools in Ontario. So that's a challenge. You live in that neighborhood, that's where you send your kids. And um, 
I'll talk about some of that a bit later, but that's my story. I've got a really godly wife. She's awesome. And, uh, I'm humbled that, that God has blessed me with her and, uh, I'm thrilled that, that we've been partnered together. I, I recently did a couple, I'm going through Ephesians at our church, did a couple of weeks on marriage in Ephesians five. And, and I'm, I mean this, I, my wife and I are very different. Um, but, but, uh, there are a few things we do well together. We, we vacation well together. We love to vacation together. I throw my watch away. I don't have any timetable. We just love to vacation. We are very hospitable. We love to have people over. She's awesome that way. And, um, and we love to serve together. If I could pick anyone I know to be serving with me, it'd be her, hands down. Now, everything else is different, but those three things work really well for us. So on this sheet, just the one question, and this has been asked for years now. I'd like to say I asked it before anybody else, but that may not be true. But if your church closed next week, would your community miss you? So would anybody but the people who are in your congregation even notice? I think it's an important question for all of us to ask. What does that look like? Um, I've, I've put this missional church. We do not call ourselves a missional church, and I rarely, if ever, use the term, but it's, it's, a, it's a popular term, so um, I have it here. And this is my definition. Um, Ed Stetzer has a great definition of it. A guy named Bruce Martin, who's in... Edmonton area has a great definition of it. This is mine. It's a missional church is a gathering of Christ followers who noticeably live God-centered lives in the sin-entrenched environment where they work and live as they share the transforming message of the gospel. Mission churches understand their surrounding neighborhoods and communities in order to introduce them to the living Christ. So several passages have been pivotal to us. I'm just going to read them quick and just walk through them. I'm not going to walk through the, the book of Jonah or the book of Acts. I'll just explain those quick, but... But Jeremiah 29 has been one of those pivotal passages for us, and we have just really appreciated it um, and what God says in it. And so I got this Bible last week down in Louisville. And so you, you ever have, my Bible literally fell apart. It was, I had duct tape and packing tape, and I had tape, and finally it fluttered everywhere. And it's about the fourth Bible I've had in ministry, and I was sad because it has all kinds of notes in it. But So I'm still trying to find out where everything is, although I do know where Jeremiah is. So Jeremiah 29, um, beginning at verse 4, and uh, this is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles whom I sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So this is God's people exiled in Babylon from Jerusalem as part of God's punishment. And God says, I want you to know I took you there. In verse 5, he says, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat what they produce, Take wives and have sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters a marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, increase there or multiply there, do not decrease. So God's saying to a guy like Jesus, who's 19 years old, your grandkids are going to be born in Babylon. God's saying to a guy like me, who's 40 years old, you're going to die in Babylon. And I'm sure God's people were thinking any moment, any day, God's going to raise up a priest or a prophet, a judge, a someone who's going to come and take us out from the city. So in that patriarchal society, I'm sure the husbands are saying to their wives, listen, don't unpack your bags, our bags. Don't, don't make this too permanent. God's going to take us out. And Jeremiah says, no, that's not what's happening. Um, then he says, it's permanent enough. Go and find spouses for your kids so that they can have kids and find spouses for their kids. Now, that's a fascinating thing because the first group of people we like to protect in our life, if, if we have them, is who? Kids. Our kids. They're the ones that, you know, lots of people, I mean, lots of our urban churches moved to the suburban areas because people didn't want to raise their kids in that environment. So first they moved out, right? 
and then their kids moved out. Like, the, then their churches moved out. Because, you know, so there's several, I mean, man, there's tons of examples. And I'm not knocking any of those churches. I'm just saying that that is a reality of what happened. And then talking to probably, probably I, I have been a part of leading or, or discussing with about seven or eight different denominations in Canada. And most of them would tell me that's their story, that most of the urban works either struggled to the point where they closed or, or they, you know, because people left, they just, they moved out and built a big new church out in the middle of the suburbs. Now, God wants to work in the suburbs. I'm not opposed to working in the suburbs, but we've created this vacuum in urban centers. And here's what's happening. People are moving back into the urban centers and now there's no churches. So now the gospel witness, um, um, it, it, it's not very strong in the sense that we have very few lighthouses in our, in our urban centers. They just don't exist anymore. They've been bought up and condoed over or other things. And, and so that becomes an incredibly staggering thing. And so God says, make sure you raise your kids there and, and your grandkids. Um, then he says this in verse 7, Seek the welfare of the city where I've carried you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find welfare. Why is that a, a shocking verse? Why would the Israelites hear this as shocking? You can touch this answer. Okay. And what city's God asking them to bless? Yeah, is that not? So, so this is not too unlike God calling, you know, Jews shortly after World War II to be a blessing to Germany. Like, that's the same kind of idea, right? And, and God says to his people, now, you make sure you bless Babylon. And God's people are thinking, well, you should, you sure you don't mean Jerusalem? Like, if you meant Jerusalem, we'd be okay. But Bab the wicked city of Babylon, isn't that where we should leave? And so God says, make sure you seek the welfare of the city or the good of the city to which I have sent you and prayer, pray for it because when it's blessed, you are blessed. Now, is that, is that not true? When our cities are doing well, when the economy is booming, when there's lots of employment, does that not affect us? And when it struggles, does it not affect us? I mean... When our economy is low, our, our people in our churches are jobless. When our economy is high, most people in our churches are, 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 are employed. And you see the, and so God says, make sure you pray to the Lord for the city. Now, let, let me just toss out, and, and that you seek its good or its welfare. How can we as Christians seek the good of the city? What are some ideas as to what that would look like? Just toss them out. Service projects? Sure, service projects. I'll give an example. Sure, a food drive of some kind. What else? Making connections with officials. Yeah. yeah. Your politicians, people like that, yeah. Getting involved with new immigrants in the area. Yeah, yeah. Helping out single mothers. Yeah. Let me, let me, I, those are, all those are excellent. Let me give a few categories. So, one, the city is complex. So, when I walk out my street and go down to James Street, the arts community is on James Street in our city. There's about 20, 25 artisans now. And um, once a month, there's an art crawl. And in the nice summer months, there might be 5,000 people that go on this art crawl from 7 till 11 or midnight uh, at the second Friday of every month. And they, it's called a crawl because some of the old buildings downtown don't have elevators in them. And you literally crawl up three levels of stairs. And all of a sudden, there's an art studio. And you're like, like twice the size of this room. You're like, wow, that's with nice windows looking out. And... And uh, it's fascinating. And, and uh, I go on them as often as I can because I've gotten to know some of the artisans and stuff. But you have the artists there. 
your, your schools are there. So McMaster University in our city, city, you know, is a university of 25,000 people. Your students are there. Your politicians are typically your city hall is down, downtown or whatever downtown area, right? So your politicians are there. Um, your most concentrated number of MPPs and MPs are there um, because that's, that's where they exist. And so you, you want to, all of these people, your immigrants and refugees, your very poor people typically, the ones that are living on the street and struggling um, from day to day, and typically in downtown, you're very rich. You've got both, right? Who are buying the million-dollar condos now. In Hamilton, they're not million-dollar condos yet, just so we all know. Um, but we have condos downtown, Hamilton will sell for 400000 That's a lot for us. And, and, um, um, and so all of those people are living together. You have your, your athletes, you have your art galleries, you have your, your um, uh, stadiums, typically. They're all downtown. And so downtown is complex. Years ago, some books were written called um, Reaching the Mind of the Unchurched Harry and Mary. I think Lee Strobel wrote them. And basically what he said was, if you can identify the typical person who lives in your community, then you would understand how to typically reach that community. So in some communities, the community I grew up in, still pretty much to this day, you can identify this is typically the person that goes to this high school, you know, it, where I grew up typically, I mean, obviously there are some professionals, but very few professionals. It's, it's typically rural, agricultural. Most of my parents, most of my buddies' parents, they ran stores or they, they um, you know, they, they owned shops of some kind. They were machinists or mechanics like my dad. They were farmers, you know. Now, I don't feel sorry for them. Years later, I learned that some of these horse farmers and others have done exceptionally well but, um, and made more than some of the professionals I know now. But all in the rural community, you could pretty much have said, especially in my growing up days, this is what the average person's income and education and whatever looks like. And you'd have been talking probably with 80% of my community. You go downtown to any center, can you do that anymore? Not at all. Staggeringly different. So when God says bring good to the city, I would say there's a few ways we, we can do it. One is um, we want to bring good, uh, you know what? That's fine. I, I, I'm going to get into some of the patterns of it, but we want to bring good to the city um, in a number of ways. One is uh, to the institutions. So I think we want to bless the educational system in our cities. And, and um, even with all that's going on with Bill 13, I, I think we still need to think through what it means that we can be intricately involved with our, with our schools. We coach in our schools. Um, we help with a local breakfast club. We assist with a bunch of stuff, and it's been... Um, it's, been, it's been incredible, so much so that the Board of Education has been phenomenal to our church for years. For, for 16 years, we've rented gyms from them during the week where we run programs for the community, and we share the gospel. We give evangelistic messages at all these nights, and they don't charge us a penny for any of them. They, they, we get a bill every year that says how many thousands of dollars it should cost us to rent these gyms, and they say at the end, total amount due equals zero. Thank you for your partnership with the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board. We were the first organization in Ontario's history where they did that, and we were, were a church, and, and a church that loves Jesus. So that, there's still, and it's still going on to this day, so there's still, you can still have strong relationships with some of these people. I, I, yeah, some will depend on the community you're in, but I, I was at a meeting last year. I, um, I sat on the board of a local health center, serves 9,000 clients, has 100 employees. I started by sweeping the floors of the breakfast club. So. Our church decided years ago that each of our staff people, I was only staff for a while, would spend a day a week of our time in the community. Um, I probably only do about four or five hours now, but 
that a chunk of our time would just be spent in the community and we'd find areas where we could be involved and be a blessing and be a model to people. And then as a church, we would pick a few things in the neighborhood that we're not running, but the neighborhood is running, but that we can walk alongside of and help and assist and provide volunteers for, like the breakfast club or the tutoring, stuff like that, or space for it. I mean, Pathways has started, uh, we have volunteers that run them, they're in a few neighborhoods now across Canada, but they've targeted urban poor neighborhoods. Um, they have one running in our neighborhood. If you are a high school student and you go to their program twice a week, at the end of grade 12, if you've gone, um, for every year you've gone and stuck with it, um, you get $1,000 a year toward your post-secondary institution of choice, so $4,000. So if you're going to college, that is a huge chunk of your education paid for. If you're going to university, I realize it's not as much, but it's still $4,000, right? And, um, and, so, um, and so we're a big part of that. And they run it. We don't. You know, the health center actually that I chaired runs it. But, but um, uh, it's, it's fantastic. So we're opening the new health center. We just built a $16 million building last year. I was the chair through that time, and uh, Andrea Horath, who's our NDP leader for Ontario, and I'm not making any political statement here, but she was our city councillor first for years. She comes in the room. I go over, I'm the chair, right? So you greet the politicians. I go over to greet her. I go to shake her hand, and Andrea's like, Dwayne. And I've met Andrea a number of times. because I, I don't get a handshake from you. And she gives me this great big hug and, uh, and just says, thank you for being a friend of the city. I mean, that's how you want to be known, right? So in the midst of them being able to go online and listen to any of my sermons on the exclusivity of Christ, on, 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 on all sorts of social topics, um, they call us a friend of the city. Um, this year, on three occasions, our city council still opens council meetings with prayer. And, uh, and this year, on three occasions, I've gotten to go, no restrictions. They introduce you, and you just pray for city council. Is that not incredible? for several minutes. And, uh, and so a, a, a godly person, we have this network, kind of like the Gospel Coalition, it's a bit broader than that, but in our city called True City. And, um, and uh, so this year, one of the people caught wind that they were doing this and I got invited and they've gone to a whole bunch of our uh, um, just gospel-minded churches and gotten all their pastors lined up to pray at all the prayer meetings until December. But they're all lined up this year. And I uh, said, we'll keep doing that because the city found it daunting to keep finding pastors who would pray before council meetings. So we said, we'll take it on. If it means that people can, like, isn't that, they were going to drop it, and now they're not. Um, so I, so I, think, I think we need to bless the institutions, the health center, the schools. I think we need to bless our politicians. What does it mean to walk alongside of them, to pray for them, to at times challenge them? I mean, I, I have sat down in offices of several of our political or um, 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 leaders of these institutions, sometimes at their invitation, sometimes at my request, and had conversations about things. You will find, if, if you, I'm not saying you can't do this, if you talk to Joe Boot, it'll be a bit different. I'm not as po politically activistic as some people are. We don't have lots of petitions and stuff going through our church. But I don't mind, in those meetings, being very clear that this is, this is where we would stand as a believing church, and this is what God has called us to and what that looks like. I'm not against the other either. I just think you need to ask yourself where the place for all that is and the context and culture of your own church and what that looks like. And sometimes I have found we have more influence um, in how they trust us behind the scenes in just having an hour lunch and saying, have you guys really thought through this and what does that look like? And, and so at their invitation at times, we have, um, we have been down there. Now, I am not saying this in arrogance. I don't say this in public very often. I'm just going to say this in this room. So our church and in being involved in this way in the community um, um, and being involved with politicians, institutions, we have won awards from two prime ministers, a premier, 
and our, our three different mayors in the time I've been at the church. We have these awards that are given to us and, and, and where they acknowledge thank you. We don't ask for them. We just get an invitation to some event and we're told, we just want to let you know that we're thrilled that you're here. Um, community service stuff. So it's all like in, impacting. So if they do some type of like community service award, some type of um, you make a difference award, right? That's the kind of stuff. So a couple of the prime minister's office have done that. Find the people in your community that's making a difference, recommend them to us. We'll do some research. I mean, others, lots of others have gotten it, right? But it's just not as common when you look down the list, because sometimes they get the list of who gets them across Canada or across whatever. And there's so many people across. It's not very often. I'm not saying we're great. I'm just saying it's not very often to see churches on it, right? And, mm -hmm. and there are others, but you just go, well, praise God for that, you know, like, because you just pray that somehow that becomes a further witness to what God is. You bring good to the city, and this is what God does. Um, uh, in that, um, I think there's a few other ways. I think you bring good, to, specifically to the immigrants and refugees to the city. I think in the city we need to be targeting, I'll use that word, our immigrant and refugee populations. I'll get into that in a few minutes with some of the stats. But in staggering numbers, people are migrating to Canada. And, uh, and we just need to walk alongside of people. The Karen people that I talked about in my message this morning, they are rural people who had never seen concrete buildings and had never seen vehicles unless they were dropping off aid in the Thailand refugee camps. And all of a sudden, they're in Hamilton two days and they're told to navigate bus systems. They were walking up and down 12 flights of stairs because they didn't know how to use an elevator. They'd never operated one. And it's just, it's disheartening. And, and here's what's more disheartening, is, is we do, John Mahaffey and I do some evangelistic work in our community, and uh, we run a couple of events where people can learn how to share their faith and then actually practice it. And, and when I get to some of the doors in the apartment buildings that we get into, um, and people have only been there two weeks, do you know who almost always beats us there? The JWs and the Mormons. Almost always. They've already been there before you've gotten there to welcome them. And, and when cults are beating us there, it's just, it's disheartening, right? And, and, um, and so I'm glad we're doing it, but I think we need to really walk alongside our immigrants and refugees. And I would say even specifically so refugees, immigrants who I also wanna walk alongside, often are coming here with a bit more support, finances. Um, there's a plan in place, not always, but I have typically found more often than not. And, in the community that we've planted, our church, where 83% of the kids don't speak any English on the first day of school, the immigrants move out quickly, the refugees don't. You know, because for the refugees, I mean, they were just told to come here, and there's very little, very little support that they have, except for government support. And, and so when I go into the homes of the Karen people from our church, it's disheartening for me that almost all the furniture they have is the furniture we've given them. That's all they've got. And, and they get some... Uh, uh, certificate, how to run a forklift, and they're so proud of it, it's hanging on their walls. Now that's taught me some things too. I have none of my degrees hanging on my walls. I think they come into my office and think, you know nothing, sir, because <laughs> my ordinate, I've, I've learned how important it is for other cultures. It, it, to me, I think it's arrogant. I'm like, I don't need to put up my degrees and my awards and my this, I'm like that just seems arrogant. I don't want to put that on the walls. And, but for them, I've realized when I have nothing on my walls, it looks like I'm unqualified to do what I'm doing. I, there's some of them in my office one day, and they were asking about my ordination. And I said, no, 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 I'm ordained. In fact, I run ordinations for our denomination at times. Several, I've done it dozens of times. And, uh, and they're like, well, do you have anything that says that? And I'm like, I don't even know where my ordination certificate is. I have, I'm like, I'd have to dig, it's somewhere. I, I really, I have no clue where my master's degree thing is. I have, so when I get my demon, it'll hang somewhere so that people know I, somewhere under that I have other degrees. 
In fact, I looked last year for, and it was bad. I couldn't find them. They just weren't that pivotal to me. So bless the city. Institutionally, immigrant and refugee, um, um, politician. I think we need to bless the city by blessing the poor of the city. I think God just calls us to walk alongside of the impoverished. All through scripture, there are dozens of verses. Isaiah 58 is one of the best in scripture of just what it means to come alongside of the poor. And I believe we need to think through issues of compassion and justice. Compassion is helping someone in their time of need. Justice is eliminating that which has caused the need. Now, when you say uh, come alongside the poor, like you, you, you talking about partnering with some other organizations that are already helping the poor, or are you talking about starting something new? Yeah, no, I think it's a both and. Okay. So I think for us, we've, so there's a breakfast club running in our neighborhood. It's run by the health center and other places like the tutoring club. They're well done, they're good, and they're not gospel-centered. Right, But we can just align ourselves with them, walk alongside of them. Other organizations, even other churches that would now deny some maintenance of the faith are part of them. But as long as there's no um, overt faith sharing at it, it's, it I can do that. I can, I can walk alongside of anyone at a breakfast club right, and serve kids toast and help with stuff like that. But at times, we also want some things that are very Christocentric. Right? And so we will choose to do some things that we feel will allow us to also, as overtly as possible, share the gospel. Well, not in a way where you have to hear the message to get your food, but in a way where you still, we have a Friday morning ministry where people come in and get food and clothes, and it's turned into a, a, a ministry where probably 50 to 60 people are coming every Friday morning. And we've tried to do it so that people experience community at it. So you sit around tables, you play Yahtzee, they love Yahtzee. So there's a knitting corner. We have some breakfast stuff out. It's just simple because we don't have an industrial kitchen in our church. So it's got to be things you can't make there. So, you know, we bring in croissants and all kinds of stuff. People make puzzles. We've got a chunk of volunteers from our church that help with it. And we just live in community with each other. And as part of that, each week we do a short 15-minute devotional um, that you don't have to stay for, but it's a, we do a verse of the week. We explain what the verse is, what it means, um, why it's in the Bible. And, and these, this group would now say, this is our church. This is our church community. And, and now a group of them have now transitioned, a small group, into our Sunday morning congregation. But we're okay trying to figure this out and what this looks like, especially when a lot of people that are coming on Friday morning struggle with mental health issues, uh, um, um, wrestle with, I mean, our crowd is bigger on Sunday morning now. We're not huge, but 250. And if you struggle with crowds, that's now a big crowd on a Sunday morning. And, and um, so it's much easier to be in that smaller circle. And, um, and so... We do both. So there are opportunities where we think, so we, we years ago started a soccer league in our neighborhood. There was no, no opportunity for um, everything had died in our neighborhood. The only people using our arena were people from outside of our community. So we started a soccer league and the start was cheap, it was easy. It wasn't a league. We started kicking around the ball with kids and it's grown to 250 of them. So we now have a division of six, uh, eight teams of four to five year olds, eight teams of six to eight year olds, you're gonna run it. And, uh, eight teams of nine to 12 year olds. And now we actually have a league where we're gonna put a team in a, in a competitive division for the kids that have done well in our league. Um, we're gonna pay a couple of grand to put them into a pretty major soccer thing later this summer and see if we're demolished or if we can do well. And this is gonna sound bad, but, um, but there's a number of people from all over the world that have been part of our soccer league and they just cream most of our Caucasian kids in soccer. So we're hoping when we go to these tournaments that we're gonna destroy the other kids. Um, yeah, yeah, go ahead. You, like, if there's other organizations or another church or something that's doing the same thing, would you, and would you help them? Yes. They come alongside that, even though maybe, you know, from the coalition's doctrine, they may not be 100% aligned. Yeah. But still come alongside them. So at this level, I'm Gospel Coalition. In my city, I'm True City. 
So Truth City is a network in our city that I helped to launch that's a broader based, um, broader, broader based. So it's, we, we created a common doctrinal statement and a common set of core values, but there are churches that are egalitarian in nature that are on it and churches that, that, that aren't, that are very complementarian. There are, there, are, there are churches from, there wouldn't be any, like, it wouldn't be open theistic, but it would be very much more broad-based. So it's just like a international teams, which is a mission, mission organi organization that helped us. We took their doctrinal statement and adopted it. So you actually came up with a statement for culture Yeah, you can go on the website and see it. So there's a doctrinal statement on, uh, and then we created a set of core values. And uh, there's now, we, we've, we've created a covenant. So you sign a covenant with the other churches that are a part of it. Wow. So Lane Fusley, who's a, an, who's a Gospel Coalition guy, but he's a, uh, with the Associated Gospel Churches, he's leading a workshop today. He's part of True City. Yeah. Conan Kubik, who's at a Presbyterian church in the city, part of the Tim Keller plant movement. Conan's leading a workshop today. He's part of it. And uh, Andrew Zanting was supposed to be here, but, but um, he's had some uh, health things that he's had to look after. And uh, he was at First Hamilton CRC Church, and he's a part of it. So both True City and Gospel Coalition. Uh, but it's broader than, than a Gospel Coalition would be. And so example would be one of the two of the other churches in our city, one Presbyterian, one Christian Reform, are, um, are starting up their own soccer leagues. And so we have all the equipment. They start out on a different night every Tuesday night at the end of our soccer league until they buy the equipment. They show up and take as much equipment as they need to their league and drop it off again. And it just goes through. So we have all these portable nets and soccer balls and pylons. And so it's more of a, a serving covenant that, so that you're able to work together in a serving nature? Is that, what that is predominantly serving, yes. We run a conference once a year. Right. Uh, but most of what we've done is figure out how we can serve the city well together. And here's what's happened. The city, though, there's a couple of our churches that they have talked to. It is so much easier for the city to find a network that they can come to, or the Board of Education find a network and say, oh, we can connect with that. So we've done that with several other churches, and that has been, and th that, that is a, a broad base. Like there are um, part of the New Anglican Movement, uh, um, Brethren, Presbyterian, Christian Reform, us, Fellowship Baptist, there's some Convention Baptists, there's, there's, um, uh, the Meeting House is a part of it because they can align themselves with, with those statements. And, and uh, so we all work together on this. And it's been, it's been a blessing. You know, it's been, you know, I mean, so much so that, let's say, with the Meeting House, out of these organizations, the Meeting House had me come in with their 300 elders and do, they asked me to do a two-hour session on church discipline. And I was like, I'm in. You want me to come and do two hours on church discipline? I'm in. Oh, I had so much fun. It was a great time. And they were a great group. It was, a, it was fantastic. So, but that... That's the kind of networking that we do together in the city. And so um, our church used to uh, provide backpacks with an organization called Start to Finish for, a number, for 10 schools in the city. And uh, now the True City Network does it. So local pastors from local churches with their congregations help us pack all the supplies, put the backpack together, and show up at their local school with the backpacks to offer them as a blessing with Start to Finish. So every, the end of every August, I show up with 100 backpacks to my local school and say, here you go. And it's a real blessing. But now we're all doing it. So we all pack together. We all do that together. And then we show up on the day and, and just prayerfully take them to the separate schools that, that God has placed in our communities. Does that, does that help? Yeah. No, it's good. I just I didn't realize you were doing that. Yeah. So that's some of the stuff that we've done. And uh, Lane Fusley, who's here, and I um, actually launched the, the movement. So... We started it and worked with it. How many years have been running? Oh, good. I'm going to say eight. It's an, it's eighth year. And there's no real hiccups, per se? Like, Not it's yet. Gone it's gone pretty smoothly. It's been a real blessing. We Lane is brilliant with church planting, and so 
We've any church planter in our city that wants to come once a month, he just runs a meeting and he and I kind of jointly do it now. We sit and have coffee in a restaurant and just talk about their ups and downs, what's going good and and from all different denominations, we're all just sitting around talking about church planting. Yeah. He's AGC, I'm fellowship, and and then there's guys from all like you know, there's there's Conan comes who's Presbyterian church plant, our church planter, like you're just all sitting around the table talking about church planting. We have a we have a missional think tank and anybody can come to it and just talk about what does it mean to engage your community look like and then we do service. So those are kind of the two thinking things and then we figure out some ways to serve together. So so let me finish Jeremiah 29. You pray for the city as well. And then, and then God says, uh, as, as you kind of walk through this passage, um, um, verse 8, this is what the Lord of hosts says. Do not let the prophets and diviners um, who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie. They are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. So Jeremiah says, you know what? There's a whole bunch of false prophets we're going to tell you that you can't stay in the city. They're lying to you. Isn't that powerful? And then God says this, verse 10, for, for the Lord says this, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I fulfill to you the promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Now, most of us hear that and don't recognize that that verse is found in this context. And we quote those verses and we're moving from one city or another, which I'm not saying is out of context or out of application, but it's out of immediate context. We quote them when we're going through a massive building program, right? I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. They are plans to prosper you um, and not to harm you. I just, this is ESV and it's all memorized in the NIV. And I'm looking at going, these aren't the same words. Um, um, they are plans, it says here, for welfare, not for evil, plans for a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. Verse 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to this place from which I've sent you to exile. So here's a beautiful picture, two things. One, God says, when you don't retreat from the wicked world that's around you, but instead, in a prayerful, God-honoring way, you engage it. God says, I want you to know I am with you. What this passage is, is saying, which is fantastic, is when God calls each of us to reach the Babylon he's called us to, to bless that city or that town, whatever that would be, um, to walk alongside the people that are there and in Jesus' name bring them good, to pray for them. God says, I want you to know that even though some days will be dark, even though some days will be difficult, I've got your back. And I know the plans I have for you. And they are plans to prosper and not to harm for hope and future. And then God says, at the end of one day, no, I'm, I'm coming back for you. In their day, that meant, you know, they're going to come back from the exile. They're not going to be in Babylon forever. In our day, that means Jesus is coming back. He's not leaving us here. This isn't home. Really quickly, because I want to go through a few slides. Book, book, and I, how many pages do I have? I'm on page one. That's awesome. Eh? Um, book of Jonah has been pivotal just at the end, where, where Jonah is upset that Nineveh has been saved, and, and Jonah's furious, and, and, um, and he tells God that he's angry enough to die. Is that not powerful? Three times in the book, Jonah says, I'm angry enough to die. So Jonah is the prophet not to be like. Um, it's kind of like the book of Judges. If you read the book of Judges, the first judge, is it Othniel? Who's the first judge? doesn't matter. Well, it does matter, but I don't remember. The first judge is the judge to most be like. The last judge, which is Samson, the judge least to be like. And that's progressive. You read the book of Judges, beautifully progressed that way. So in, in, in the prophets, you have Jonah here, who's the, the, the prophet not to be like. I do appreciate what Tim Keller says about this. It's probably the only reason we can know any of this about Jonah 
is because later on he wrote this. God inspired him to write his own story and, and God had changed his heart enough to write it. That's Tim's speculation. He calls it speculation, I agree. But he's there, he's upset, he wants the city to burn, he's at, at the edge of it, and God says to him, Jonah, Nineveh has more than 120,000 people that cannot tell their left hand from their right. They don't know right from wrong. That's the idea, it's a moral statement. And, 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 uh, um, and, and you know, great cattle, which means they have a great economy. And then he just says, should I not be concerned about that great city? As you see, God has a heart for the city. The book of Acts, not exclusively, but majority of the church planning that goes on in Acts is in urban centers. Not that God doesn't care about the rural city. So really quick, why is reaching the city challenging? Let me offer a few just ideas. The unchurched have changed and we have not. Man, I, I'm not old enough to remember all this. I'm only 40. But you go back in our culture 50 years. And most people in our culture 50 years ago, if you said the Bible said, at least felt like it was a good book. Today, I, I go on university campuses and talk. If I talk about the Bible, most people do not think it's a good book. In fact, in our day and age, um, with the in, increase in, in awareness about violence and awareness about, about equality and diversity, the Bible, for most people, is a book. There are people that want to ban the Bible from public, right? Because, or, or have altered versions of it. That's a whole shift. I mean, I mean our churches are, are, for the most part, emptying, not filling. I know there are exceptions to that. And so the unchurched are, are an unchurched people. I have friends at 40 years of age who are 30 and under who've never stepped inside a church for anything, never for a wedding, never for a funeral. Funerals are now done at the funeral homes. Weddings are done. I mean, how many weddings do I now do as, a, as an ordained minister um, in actual uh, uh, centers? Like even Christian couples who just decide that they'll get married in, in the hall, which I'm not opposed to. I'm not saying that it's got to be in the church, but it, it, it's very common now. It just happens all the time. Um, um, the world lives in our nation. That's a big change. 262,000 people a year, uh, more than that now, but over 250,000 people a year are migrating to Canada. Um, we don't understand the city. I already explained to you how complex it is. Everybody lives there. I walk out my door and everybody's there. The poor, the rich, the politicians, the athletes, the university, um, the hospitals. They're all pr pretty much downtown. Not, not exclusively, but a chunk of them. Um, we fear change. So reaching the city is hard because, man, it takes a whole new approach. There's no single way of doing it. Um, I think one big area is we're not familiar with spiritual warfare, and we need to be. John Mahaffey, who helps run this conference, is brilliant when it comes to spiritual warfare and has seen numbers of people um, released from demonization. And uh, I think it's something we need to be very aware of. I mean, when Lucifer fell, a third of the angels fell with him, right? And when John sees his image of heaven, he says there's 10,000. There's 1,000 times 1,000. No, he says there's 10,000 times 10,000 angels. Well, what he's saying is he didn't count them, one, two, three, four. He's saying immeasurable number, and a third of them had fallen. Is that, not, that says there's a lot of demonic activity going on. And sometimes we need to name as such. Um, uh, the world scares us. I mean, goodness, it is scary. I, I, my son, at eight years old, has his buddy Joey over from school. Joey was at school at Benetto and then not at school and then back at school. And I was just like, Joey, why weren't you at school for two years? He said, well, when my dad was arrested for all of his drug use, eight years old kid, my dining room table eating dinner. Um, I wasn't allowed to go to school anymore because mom and I were in a shelter and blah, da, 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 da. He tells a story while he's eating. And he said, dad got out. And so we're all living together now. And I go to bed every night and pray that dad won't use drugs anymore because I want my family to be together. Drive eight-year-old kid home, right? So this is his story, and he's telling it, and he understands the whole thing. We're driving back, my son and I, and Ethan looks at me, he's eight years old, and he said, Dad, I didn't want to ask at supper, but what's a drug? 
No clue. Now, I would have no clue at eight years old what a drug was. But my son in living in that environment is exposed to that. Um, they would suggest that half of the school he's a part of by grade eight, they've tried pot. Half of the kids. Pot is everywhere in my neighborhood. You can smell it. Maybe it's in every neighborhood now, but it is just everywhere in my neighborhood. It is. Woo! I occasionally, I have a loud voice. You guys caught that this morning. So I occasionally will smell a lot of pot and be like, I don't want to get high in the open air. Right? I just kind of proclaim it and say, this should not be. So the world scares us, and rightly so. Really quickly, growth pattern development. So this is, this is from the last census in 2006. The 2011 census is not released yet. We have a population of 31,000. It's probably 33 now. Had the highest growth rate of any G8 company. Two-thirds of our growth um, is now due to immigration, over 260,000 immigrants a year. Four-fifths, if you go down the next slide, urban patterns of our country live in urban areas, according to Stats Canada. Six cities have more than a million people. These cities represent 68% of Canada's population, and half of Canada's population live in Toronto, Vancouver, and Montreal. Great, greater areas, not just the actual city centers. Is that not staggering? Half, this is all Stats Canada stuff. You can read it online. The new results will be out in the next few months. I was online. It wasn't complete enough for me to change all these stats, but it will be available. It's coming out now. They're releasing it from the 2011 stats, but this is only changing, changing more and more. Um, in 2005, we accepted 262,000 new, newcomers from 213 countries. You can read later if you want where they're coming from. But by 2017, it is estimated that one in five Canadians will be a visible minority. And um, it, it just changes everything. We've all of a sudden you have people from various cultures and groups and languages and traditions and customs all gathering together. And I think we have a tremendous place as Christians to talk about how the transformed gospel life allows us to see the beauty and the image of God in every created human being and, and what it means when God is redeeming us from our fallen state that now there are things from every culture and custom and tribe and language that God is also redeeming um, that together we should be celebrating. I think we have a lot to learn from each other. And I think we can be richer for it. In terms of the rural patterns, um, in general, the rural population has increased by 1%, which is the lowest in all of history. <coughs> but it's only the rural populations that are close to urban populations. Does that, does that make sense? In your remote rural populations, for the first time in Canada's history, they decreased by 0.1%. Now, if it happens again in this census, this is 2006 data, they'll, they'll start to say this is trending and start to work towards what that looks like. Religious backgrounds, again, this is 2006, uh, but you know, 8 million people that call themselves Protestants, 13 million Catholics, 580,000 Muslims, 300,000 Buddhists, 298,000 Hindus. I'll, I'll tell you this. One of the things we need to do is get to learn to know people from other cultures and other, other religions. So as part of what John Mahaffey and I do, we, we get people to tour local religious sites. We've been to Sikh temples, we've been to Buddhist temples, we've been to all kinds of things like that. And we go and then we do, do some brief debriefing after. And uh, last year we went to the downtown mosque and the local um, leader of the mosque and I have struck up a friendship. And on several occasions we now go for coffee or lunch and talk. And this is how it started. I said to him, I said to him at the mosque when we were leaving, I won't name his name, but I, I just said to him, um, John, which is not a Muslim's name typically. I said, John, I know you believe I am an infidel separated from God forever. And I know you know, I believe that without Jesus Christ in your life, that you are cast from his presence forever. I'm just wondering if based on that knowledge, if we could have a friendship and get together and talk. And he smiled and he said, I would love to. I said, why? He said, 
so many times I meet with so many people that talk like we're all the same, and you and I know we're not. And so he said, by the end of this, you'll be Muslim. And I smiled and said, I pray not. <laughs> um, and uh, we've had some great conversations. But people are open. They're not closed. Not to the conversation, not to talk, not, not, to, not to share each other's faith, not to even talk about... It's like we just have some common political problems even in our city, that, and we sit down and talk about that. I mean, man, I mean this humbly, but would it not be staggering if 5,000 people attend that mosque? Would it not be staggering if God saved a local imam in Hamilton? I mean, man. So, religious background. I think we need to know our city, our, our town, wherever we are. Who lives there? So typically, I think it's still important to know who, who, who lives there. How many single moms live here? How many, how many, how many people that are making $100,000 a year? How many people are making $20,000 a year? Who lives here? Where do they work typically? How does that happen? In our city, huge transition in work. So 20 years ago in Hamilton, Steeltown, right? 20,000 people are employed by steel in our city. 20,000. Today, under 3,000. Is that not staggering? Our major employers, so the blue-collar economy has tanked in Hamilton. Our major employers now are Hamilton Health Science Corporation, number one, the hospital system. 10,000 employees. Typically, what do you need to work at a hospital? A university degree. I mean, there are, there are some jobs with that, but most of them are degree jobs. And several jobs aren't degree jobs. They're multiple degree jobs. You need a master's degree or a PhD of some kind. So, so that changes everything, right? Um, and, and I'll tell this story in a minute because it really struck me. This has struck me in terms of my upbringing more than any other. Not a complaint, just an observation. But second thing, second employer is the city of Hamilton. Again, to work for the city, you typically need... Yeah. Third major employer in our city is McMaster. Is that not a staggering change? So we have no tax base, right? And education. So it changed. So all of a sudden we have a huge middle class in our, in our culture, immigrants, refugees who are here, who can't find jobs because there's no entry level jobs. They have to work at Burger King. Like they're, they're, they just don't exist anymore in our city. So they need entry level jobs that don't exist and and, uh, and, uh, and our middle class, you know, people that used to be able to not finish high school, you know, just even 20 years ago and be able to be hired for $45,000 a year at Stuckel to Fausco, those jobs are gone. But here's what I've learned. And in those families where there's never a talk of college or university, they don't go. Because it's never part of, their, part of their, or rarely go, I should say. So I grew up in a house where I never, ever talked about going to school after high school. My parents didn't do it, so I never, my dad has trades, right? But just they never talked about it. So it just was never a part of my radar until I got into high school. And then in the middle of high school, I had, you know, I did fairly well at school. So I realized I could go to school and get some scholarships. And, but I had never been on a university campus until um, I was 17 years old. I drove, this is a bad story, but I drove out to Queen's University with some friends to see it. And we got there and I called home because, you know, you're 17, you can call home and say that you're okay. And my mom answered the phone. And she goes, what, what do you mean you're there? I'm like, oh. She goes, how fast were you driving? I'm like, Hi, Mom, I'm safe, <laughs> because I'd driven to Queens quite fast from Hamilton. And she was very distraught that I was there in two and a quarter hours or whatever it was. And it should be three in a bit. So that said, my son, because I speak at universities, and because I have a university degree, he's been to where I've studied and, 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 and you know, heard me even come to places and lecture. My son at 10 years old, my daughter at 8 years old, already talking about where they're going to go to school. My son doesn't want to go far, but he doesn't want to live at home. So at 18, he's going to Mac. 
because he wants to come home to eat, eat good food every so often. My daughter, Abby, is definitely going to that because she's not moving out. She's buying the house from us. She likes our house. And uh, at eight years old, she's convinced she's buying it. So the twins are out of luck because they're too young to know what they're doing yet. And uh, Abby's already made claims on the house. But that said, that, know where they work. Where do your people work? And sometimes in the city, it's complex. They work in all kinds of places. It's important to know that. Age demographics in your area, what are they? What do people believe? How many people from various religions are there? What are their idols? Because one of the things I think Tim Keller is so right on is in evangelistic preaching of the gospel, God wants us to be able to identify the idols that have enslaved people and see them destroyed so that they no longer enslave them to, into idolatry anymore. And in some places, it's money. You know, my buddies, it's consumerism. They're just enslaved by money. They have to own, they have to buy. Some cases, it's hedonism. It's a sexual pleasure. Some cases, just, I think I'm king. Um, ministering in the city. Let me throw out a few things here. Um, be guided by a theology for the city. So I, I throw out a few passages. There's more. Jesus looks over Jerusalem and he... Yeah. So I think, what does it mean to, to weep for my city? Live where you minister. I think where at all possible, it's important to live there. Now, I wrote down names and I've forgotten. Ryan, in a community like yours, that can be challenging because your houses might sell for a lot of money. And pastoral staff typically doesn't make as much. Um, but I would say where possible, we need to try to get our people to move into the city and, and move into the areas where we're ministering and live as close as possible possible. In a place like Aurelia, it's a bit different because people would think if you live in Aurelia, you live in a, like, it, there's not like you have to live near the church, right? In Hamilton, Hamilton's big enough that we live within, all of our staff live within walking distance of the church. It's just a decision we've made. If you're going to be, we're hiring a children's ministry coordinator right now, and it's written right in it, and everyone, we've had 30 applications because we've become a bit known over the years, and, and uh, oh my goodness, I can't believe the people that are saying to me, what do you mean we need to live close to the church? I say, well, we all do. So it's a requirement to be hired here. We all live within walking distance. Not to intern, but yeah. <laughs> you'll be okay. But one day. Um, um, and so what, one of the reasons that's important is because cities are divided into neighborhoods. And if you, if you drive the 401 two communities over to go to where you're going to church, it becomes very hard. So I encourage people to live as close as they can to the churches. I do recognize in Toronto, I have some friends that pastor Toronto, and there can be, it's my, the, our associate pastor pastored Melrose Baptist, which is in a very wealthy area of Toronto, a Jewish community. And it just was unaffordable. The homes, like, you know, you'd have to have $800,000 as a pastor to buy a home, and that just wasn't, he would need a big salary increase. And then he moved to my community where he could buy a house for $220,000. So um, that was fantastic for him. Um, but that said, I do think that where possible, you, you want to live where you minister. You under, want to understand where you live. I talked about the demographics. You just want to know where that's done. Westside Baptist Church is a sister church to us. They were at about 70 people um, about two years ago. They asked me, because I wasn't traveling because of, of our twins being born, um, if I would help them with some stuff. So I went to a number of their uh, meetings. I went to all their board meetings, all their chairperson meetings. I met with their two pastors and did some mentoring with them. They're averaging about 180 on a Sunday right now. Uh, their pastor, Dave, though, did the best demographic study of a neighborhood I've ever seen. If you want a copy, I can get him to send you one. Just because the university, he just did a phenomenal job of researching and talking to principals and people and getting stats from City Hall. It's not that hard to do. And in a couple of months, they'd put together a great demographic study of that neighborhood just to say, here's who lives. So they found out that um, uh, over half of their neighborhood is transient students. So only, only I think it's two, I think it's two thirds and one third our stable family units. Well, that changes everything. If that's who, so now, so when they went there, there were 70 of them, um, and uh, maybe 10 of them were students. There's now 180 of them, and 70 of them are students. So 
There's 110, so it's grown by, you know, some families, and now 70 students are there on a Sunday. We're hoping next year there will be 110 students at that church. West Side Baptist Church. So it's right by McMaster. So right, yeah, right there. Um, so that's one of the things we said. One of the things everybody was scared of when I went in to help them was that they were going to become the poverty center church like Houston Street. And I said, no, you need to figure out how to reach this neighborhood. So, um, and that's been pivotal. Uh, one of the things they also want to be a part of is reaching immigrants and refugees, but starting with the student populations. Uh, um, develop a team that loves the city. So it's important to have people that love the city. You don't want people that are always talking about how much they'd like to move to the country. If you want to move to the country, live in the country, which is there's nothing wrong with, or suburbs. Um, create a vision for the city. So it's important to, to cast vision. What does it mean that God has called us here? And what does that look like? And, and how do we, what areas, and when you're smaller, smaller areas, as you grow, you pick more areas, but what avenues can we be a part of? What, a breakfast club, a uh, something with city council, you hear that. I mean, we, when we started off, we weren't running anything. The school said, we need help setting up for graduation. And we said, we can provide four volunteers to help you set up and take down. We can run the refreshment booth at graduation. That's all we did. It wasn't rocket science. It was easy to do. We would always get more volunteers than I needed. And the school really felt blessed by it and finally said, can you guys do more stuff? And then we said, what kind of more stuff? We started doing that in the Catholic school in our community. This became awesome until we got banned by the priest. But... This was phenomenal for a while, um, for about three years. We, did, we started tutoring with it. We just said, well, how can we help you? They said, you can help tutor. And this is the, this is the public, uh, the elementary school level. So um, it was not, doesn't have this pathways that we have now have. They don't, apply, they don't qualify you have to be in high school to go to pathways. So we were tutoring twice a week. And uh, after the first year, they decided to, um, and it's right across the street from school. So two schools are, one's right across the street, one's across two streets. But they're right there. You can see them both from the front doors of our church. And... And the Catholic school had us doing more and more stuff in the tutoring program. And then finally they said, man, you guys are religious. Would you come in and do some of the teaching in our religious classes on how you view the Bible? In the Catholic school. And we were like, you sure? Like, that's, that's allowed? They're like, sure. The principal. So we got invited in. And I met with the, the, the I've met now a number of times with their board of director. And they're the second in command of the board of the Catholic school board in Hamilton. And, and we're now in the schools once a week teaching their religion classes from the scriptures. Is that not staggering? So at the end of the year, now some of you are from different traditions, so this isn't as funny, but at the end of the year, they wanted to thank us. And so they thanked us because it's predominantly Portuguese with homemade Portuguese bottles of wine for the Baptists. Is that not awesome? The, the Portuguese Catholics gave the Baptists homemade bottles of, but this is what happened. If you go back and look at that Fraser Institute study a few years ago, three years ago, where our one public school was ranked in the bottom 100. The Catholic school ended up being ranked in the top 100. And they would say that they would accredit that our tutoring was incredibly instrumental in that ranking. And you just say, well, thank you, Lord. Um, the, the public school system, there's a whole bunch of issues with that. I don't mean issues with that school, but, but a huge number of the students at school, English is their second language. And so when they do the, the standardized testing, the problem is, is that it's so hard for, oh man, it's just a whole different world in terms of trying to do that with them. I think we need to live out being sent. What, do, what does it mean that, that, that all through John, Jesus says, God has sent me, God has sent me, God has sent me. And some of you may have heard this from Ed Stetzer, this is where I got it from. And after the resurrection, Jesus is alive with the disciples saying, as the Father sent me, so I were sent people. What does it mean to live out being sent? 
disciple, well, I think it's pivotal to disciple people. I think we need to be anchored in the word. I think, I think people need to have a strong theology and doctrine. So we have numbers of venues and classes that we run at our church continually to be teaching people and to be feeding our leaders and to be helping out because I think it needs to be balanced in the two. I, I think some churches go so overboard in the outreach. And I mean, I say that and say that we would see soccer balloons, the numbers in Christmas hampers. If you take soccer and Christmas hampers out of our equation, because they are staggering numbers, we would see on average during the school year about 400 people a week that don't know Christ that are part of our programs and ministries. In the summer, it's huge because we have 600 people to soccer field every week, five to 600. And at Christmas, we help this last year, 225 families with Christmas hampers. Well, if you average four families, that's a thousand people we help pretty much, right? With Christmas hampers. And so I don't, I don't, I don't, but, but we have contact with them. Everyone who got a Christmas hamper with us now, everyone gets a personal invitation into a Christianity Explored Bible study. They have them upstairs. If you don't know what it is, it's a phenomenal tool. Um, in my personal opinion, way better done than Alpha, though I also appreciate how God has chosen to use Alpha over there. There's no way am I knocking Alpha. God has used that powerfully. I will never develop anything nearly remotely as, as used of God by that. And uh, but we have loved Christian Explorer. The videos, just they're more interactive. They're shorter typically. There's much more room for discussion in the groups, which it's, it's discussion-based, and it walks you through the Gospel of Mark. So it, it drives people back to the Word. Um, so, so disciple well, I think that's important. Care compassionately. I think we just need to walk along people and love them and live justly. Just an example of care compassionately. So a family who at that time was not going to our church is, um, is in our community. Their kids are part of our programs. Occasionally the mom would show up. Husband's at work one day. The, the, the work um, bin is mislabeled. He opens it up, industrial cleaning. He's got all the protective gear on. The substance inside makes its way up into his suit and leaves him permanently blind. He's now blind. 48-year-old dad, um, four kids, blind. And, and he only went to grade eight. Um, he's a wonderful guy, man. But he, his whole identity was absorbed in, I can do stuff with my kids, right? Not a believer, right? I can do stuff, I can do stuff, I can do stuff, I can do stuff. Um, and, uh, and so we... Um, we uh, took up an offering to help this family. And uh, we have a whole benevolent policy that's been checked by the four C's and all that kind of stuff, so you can do this stuff. And uh, we just wanted to care for them compassionately, and I don't want this to go on record. And this is how much we were able to give them in one check and just say, God bless you. In a, in a church that doesn't have a ton of money, just everyone pitched in. I'll tell you, when I dropped off that check in their house, and their son and my son are good friends, and, and I, she just collapsed. She was so overwhelmed with, with what this looked like. And it's been a nightmare since for them um, because, you know, everyone's saying it was somebody else's fault, right? Um, the one company went bankrupt and it started up again because they know there's, there's, there's never been a chemical burn like this in terms of blinding of eyes that they can find in Canada's history, the physicians have said. And so, you know, at some point there could have been a major whatever that goes on with this stuff, lawsuit and whatever. But, 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 Everyone's now shifting blame and everyone's doing whatever and everyone's, you know, and here's a guy in the midst of all this mess who just, he just wants to, he just wants to have his eyes back, you know, and, he, and navigating how to be a dad when you thought being a dad meant I throw the football off my kids. Does that make sense? I, I go fishing with them. I, so, but in the midst of that, I've also had amazing opportunities to care for them. And in March, one of our elders board chair and myself and, and this fella and our three sons all went to the Toronto fishing show, whatever it is, sportsman show. And no one had taken him out since he's been blinded. None of his friends, none of his buddies. Because it's hard. Nobody knows how to, he, I mean, he can't see anything. But he's, he lets people know, but I'm, I'm still here, you know? 
And, and that day, he told his wife, and she called me and said, she said, he said, it was the best day he's had in a year. Never had a better day, you know? And, and so we need to live, care compassionately for people. We also need to live justly, which for me is asking in any opportunity where, where there is an injustice, is there an opportunity to bring justice? Sometimes there is not. In this case, this system is so crazy. I don't think I have any type of influence where I can jump in. But there are times when I can. We've had single parents in our families where the gas company at their fault has shut off the gas wrongly so and told them that we can't turn it on for several days in the middle of winter because their schedules are too busy. I get on the phone with them and say, so it's your mistake. And the gas company says, yeah, it's our mistake. And I say, well, I think you should be here in the next hour. They said, we can't. I said, well, the Hamilton Spectator is coming to do a great story on this. So if you can't be, they will be. They were there within an hour. And I'm not saying that to be threatening or to be mean or to be anything, but it was their fault. They admitted it. We did it wrong. You know, we have someone in our community where the bank messed up. The bank messed up. The bank says we never do this. We never make this mistake. Never make this mistake. Somebody put some checks in the bank machine. Their account was frozen over Christmas because everything balanced. You know, meager income. The bank said that it, they'd put in a check. They claimed they put in more money than they did, but everyone that got uh, whose checks for cash got them back. So we got all the checks we could prove because they're all stamped that they all went in the bank, and the bank says, oh, we were wrong, sorry. This is now three weeks later because it takes money, time for the, or a month later for the checks to come back. And at that point, the bank says, it's now gonna take six to eight weeks for us to correct this and put all this money back in your account. The day they thought that this person had ripped them off, they stopped everything. And now it's gonna take six to eight weeks, which is now 12 weeks after this whole incident starts, three months, but the day they thought they were wrong, the bank was wrong. So I went down. Sat with them. Now, I didn't do all this right in the beginning. I was young in this incident. And I remember when I got down to the bank and the bank main manager said, um, the person you've been dealing with in the back room is crying. And uh, she, said, um, she said, we would really appreciate if, if somehow in this, we recognize we're wrong, if we could come to a more peaceful resolution. I'm not saying I handled all that well then, um, but by the time I left that bank that day, everything was turned back on in their account and the money was back in it. Now, I will say in my years, I was probably 27 when I did that, 28. I've learned there are much godlier. I don't want to lose my witness in the midst of doing that. I now, when I call a corporation, I was on the phone with, I'll just say, Bell Canada a number of weeks ago who had taken advantage of some, I want to be careful. I don't think they intentionally did it, but you know what I'm saying. They signed someone up for the mega package who has clear mental incapacities. So they sign up for this thing that's all free, and at the end of it all, or mainly free, you know, it was 56 bucks a month or something. At the end of this four-month trial, it was $194 a month, right? So I'm on the phone trying to explain this whole thing, and I always remind myself, I'm representing Jesus, representing Jesus, right? But so sometimes you just need to, to move to justice. I am so sorry these are so small. These were slides, and I didn't think about what I shrank them, what would happen. But the next slide is all stats of Hamilton, and you can read them later on when you want. And I've got a couple of great quotes from Tim Keller at the back that you can read later on your own. Um, um, and something from Isaiah 1. So let me do a couple of quick things. Um, challenges. Man, I speak English. It's the only language I speak. And people around me are speaking all kinds of languages all the time. And I don't always know how to interact well. And, um, and so we're working now with Ethnic Works to understand how is it. Because most, uh, you guys may understand this, some of your work much better than I will. But in Canada, my research would say, if you don't have a continual influx of a people group from a certain country, that that church that's forming will only last, that ethnic group will only last a generation. So with the example with the Karen people, there's no migration coming from Burma anymore that we can foresee. There's 350 of them living in Hamilton, 130 at the church. 
you know, there's not going to be as much intermarrying. Eventually, all these kids are going to go off to university and colleges and, and they're going to marry and they're not going to go back to the same church because the church is speaking a different language. Now, if you have a continual influx from China or from the Philippines or from other places, you can, you can create a sustainability. Um, uh, but anyway, so we've tried to walk alongside of people to figure out how do we do this well and what does it look like for us to do this together and how do we learn from each other and are there ways of doing this appropriately? And man, I'll tell you, sometimes it's been challenging and hard, but it's a beautiful thing too because we learn from each other and what does that look like? One of the reasons churches haven't survived well in their urban centers is it's expensive. It's expensive to minister there. I mean, our soccer league costs us $20,000 a year to run. Our Christmas hampers cost us $30,000 a year to give away. And we need the help of other churches. So I brought these for you. This is not to ask in any way for any donations from anyone in this room. But we send these out three times a year. And we now have a huge partnering base of people all around us that say, yeah, we'll come alongside and help you. And, uh, and so we, our budget's about a half a million dollars now. Almost $200,000 of that comes in from outside sources every year to help us. And um, um, if I didn't give enough, I've got lots of them. Um, and, uh, and so, one more? Oh, no, I did it. And, uh, and so we write letters like this. If you go on our website, you'll see we're in a capital campaign. We have a, a video and we raise some money from that. So, but explain to people why, oh man, I, one, let's read one of these stats here really quick from the Hamilton. So in my neighborhood, where is it? Oh, I didn't put it in here, shoot. Uh, so in my neighborhood, uh, oh, here's it. So in one Hamilton neighborhood, the median household income is $36,000 annually. That's not mine, but it's, it, this is a the thing that came out of the spectator. In, 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 a Ham, in a Burlington neighborhood, the average income is 106000 So you can see that $60,000 annual income difference and say, well, if I have $60,000 more, and I realize it costs more and all that stuff, but surely there's also more generosity to the Lord. And to, so I think we teach people to, what does it look like to do that? Um, uh, in terms of other challenges, there's there's some things that were just foreign to me. I didn't understand. I didn't understand mental illness at all. I didn't understand what it would mean for people to live like in a, in a fog their whole life. I still don't know because I don't have any type of mental illness that I know of. But man, I've journeyed with enough people that I have a much better understanding and appreciation. And when you talk with people who think every week they've been in Egypt or Israel, it is challenging. Um, um, back, back, so there'll be the three biggest things for me. We've, we've aligned ourselves with some people who care greatly for people that struggle with mental health issues, a Christian psychiatrist, this thing in Hamilton called Homestead Christian Care, which is brilliant, which provides sustainable, affordable housing for people struggling with mental health issues. And they have so cared for us. Um, let me pray for you. Is that okay? God, thank you so much for the different places you've called each of us to minister and to care for congregations and to be involved in congregations and to love people who don't know you and to encourage people who do know you. And God, we live in our country in an increasingly complex age, regardless of where we live. And, and each of us have people living around us where it can be a real struggle to figure out how we best see them one to yourself. And so firstly, we thank you that salvation is your gift to us. And we give you praise for that. And Lord, as we long to be a people that see the gospel go forth to all parts of our land in every, every corner of Canada, whether it's urban or rural or suburban, would you bless us with the knowledge to know um, how to take your word, your saving truth out into those areas in such a way that your spirit would just powerfully draw people to yourself. 
And so God use us, we ask, because beyond any strategy, any, any, anything we can talk through, we just, we just need your spirit to powerfully move. Revive our hearts so that through our hearts being sold out to you, the world around us, because of this witness you would grant us to shine like stars will be one. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.